This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington with Peter Loge. He is an associate professor of media and public affairs at George Washington University, also the director of the Project on Ethics in Political Communication. That's a big title. Uh, I invented it, so, you know, I get to pick. Let's talk about the media coverage in campaign 2020. Overall, at the 30,000-foot level, how are the media doing? I think they're doing the best they can. Part of it is as as observers, as uh, voters, we want the headlines. We want to know who's up and who's down. Uh, I think the media are trying to do what they can to learn from 2016, um, to not fall for sensationalist traps, to provide as much depth as they can. I think it's a little bit tricky given the, the size of the democratic field and, and how fluid it is. Um, hopefully as the field winnows and the issues come into sharper contrast, the media can do do a really good job of, of explaining the positions um, and not just what the candidates want to do, but how they hope to accomplish it, you know, what promises are aspirational, which are just sort of, you know, promises into thin air, that sort of thing. As Super Tuesday approaches on Tuesday, March the 3rd, there does seem to be an awful lot of what I would call horse race journalism. Every day there's a new poll and that seems to dominate the political headlines. It does, it does, and that's been a, a complaint about political media coverage from you know from the beginning, right? Who's up and who's down, and then everybody wants to back a winner. So if you have the the impression of winning, that then becomes a reality of winning, which feeds impressions of winning, spirals of defeat. Seem, oh my gosh, it looks like we're losing again. Um, and and this is, I think you saw this accentuated coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire, which are, are terrific states, but they're not representative of the U.S. They're very small. And suddenly, um, somebody who does finishes second or third in Iowa is is the standard bearer for America until the next media cycle, right? Um, and, and this has an interesting effect, not just sort of shallow coverage, but it also turns us as as voters and citizens into fans and viewers, right? I'm a big soccer guy. I go to Audi Field and watch DC United, and I cheer. I don't play, right? My role is to buy things and shout a lot. Because I'm an observer of a, a sporting spectacle. By covering uh, the campaigns as a horse race, the risk is that as a, as a citizen, as a voter, I am now watching a sporting spectacle. And my, my job is to cheer at the appropriate moment, to you know tweet my favorite fan moment of my favorite team, which in this case is a candidate. And it discourages my active participation. Right? It's not asking me, what do you think about this? Right? How should this debate go? And what questions are left unanswered? I'm, I'm an observer in my own political process, and I think that's a real risk. And this, of course, comes at a time when there's uh, really a, a changing media landscape is an understatement. You have the announcement this past week of McClatchy declaring bankruptcy. You have local newspapers that are struggling across the country. But then you have the New York Times, which has seen a significant increase in subscription journal- journalism, and, of course, the rise of social media. So where is this all heading? <laughs> if any of us knew where it was all heading, I think uh, somebody would hand us a prize and build a statue for us. No one, nobody really knows. I think it's it's very bad news that, that local journalism is on the demise, in in part because a local newspaper tells us who we are. Right? I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and then the Haven Register was the daily paper of record. Then Haven Advocate is our weekly paper, and it didn't just cover local sports, you know, high school sports. It also covered who we were as a community. The New Haven Register's offices were downtown. I knew where they were. They were part of who we were. 
when you lose that, you lose some of this this local identity, this local culture, the 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 localities which make up America. It's great the New York Times is doing better. I subscribe. The Washington Post, you know, I subscribe. That's fantastic. But I also live in a place. And and if we're losing that sense of place, if we're losing that sense of local identity, I think we're losing part of of sort of the American culture, the American fabric. Let's talk about Michael Bloomberg because Bloomberg News has more employees than the New York Times. And yet they are taking a very unique approach in covering this campaign by essentially not covering the campaign. That is an interesting position to take. Um, I understand the rationale for it. I would be, I'm a I don't think it's a great idea in a democracy. I think uh, more voices is, is better. I think more scrutiny is better. If you've got some top journalists and they have some really sharp, top-notch journalists, they should be covering the most important issues of the day, which includes, you know, a guy who's surging in the polls. So as somebody who teaches ethics and political communication, how do we deal with this? How do you address it? That's a good question. I, I encourage my students to think about it for themselves. You know, what are they going to do about this? Where else are they getting their coverage? Um, as you said, in our changing media landscape, there are um, no shortage of people with opinions and, and analyses. And so luckily, if Bloomberg isn't covering Bloomberg, somebody else is covering Bloomberg. And some of that's the New York Times, the Washington Post, C-SPAN, um, the networks, that sort of thing. Um, but I also think that, you know, when I talk to my students, we, we look at we look at the ethics, uh, sort of the classical ethicist, right? They're reading Quintilian and Cicero, Orwell, Machiavelli, and others. But then also a direct um, application. What's going on today? What would Cicero or what would Plato have to say about today? And constantly making that connection so that when they go into the world, when they're, when they're journalists or when they're political strategists or candidates, they, they can say, you know what? Actually, a robust democratic society requires a robust conversation, which means everybody has to participate. I've got great hope for uh, what happens 10, 15, 20 years from now because our students today are looking at what Bloomberg is doing, both, both the media outlet and the candidate, and saying, what's right about this? What works? What maybe shouldn't be? Uh, what would we do better or what would we do differently? And I can imagine that you will be talking about this campaign for years to come. Just look at Michael Bloomberg. In three months, he has hired more than 2,400 people spent upwards of $400 million in advertising, is worth close to $60 billion, has said he will spend what it takes in order to to compete and get the nomination. And so far, the strategy seems to be working. It does. It does based on the horse race coverage, right? And the, uh, the who's up and who's down. And I'm really glad you mentioned the numbers of staff he's hiring. A lot of the media attention has been on, on the ads because that's what we see, right? A friend of mine is a senior Trump advisor, and posted on Facebook that his granddaughter came and announced that she was supporting Bloomberg because he was going to give health care to everybody. It, it really distressed my friend immensely. But a lot of what a campaign takes isn't, isn't just the ads, right? You need people on the ground. You need organizers. You need people knocking on doors. You need people showing up at town hall meetings, building and developing relationships. And, and Bloomberg is spending a tremendous amount of money on really good people doing that all over the country. Right. Ultimately, votes win elections, uh, not ads, not money. And, and votes a lot of times comes down to, to infrastructure. And, and that's where Michael Bloomberg is spending a tremendous amount of money. And it really is a, a campaign battleship, not only with an eye on getting the nomination, but already looking at states like Tennessee that they think could potentially flip to Michael Bloomberg if he is the nominee. They're, they're looking at the long game. And not just Tennessee. They're looking at 
you know, the American territories where nobody campaigns, right, because they're very small, very hard to get to, not very many electoral votes. They're looking at states that are traditionally Republican because typically in a campaign you have a finite amount of time, right? It's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And you have a finite amount of resources. No matter how much money you have, there's only so much you can spend, and you've got a little window in which to spend it. Bloomberg has the luxury of spending enough money to effectively buy himself time, right? He can buy talent to say, go take care of these things so I can focus elsewhere. Even if you know Tennessee or Alabama or Texas aren't really in play, he can divert Republican resources to those states, divert it away from Trump's reelect. Um, and he can also potentially help down ballot races, right? Where do, who are the House members up in these states? What about the senators or the governor, mayors? Suddenly, if there's money behind an infrastructure supporting the Democrat at the top of the ticket, they're supporting Democrats up and down the ticket, right? Which now, again, you're buying time um, for for other Democrats, but you're also forcing the Republicans to spend their limited resources playing defense which makes it easier then for, for the Democrats to play offense in, in purple or swing states. We are talking with Peter Loge from George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs. You grew up in Connecticut and went to school where? I went to Wilbercross High School in New Haven, Connecticut. Went to Emerson College in Boston. Huge Emerson fan. Big. I'm, I'm a complete homer. I've got a hat in my office and a cup and a chair. It's completely in the tank. Uh, and grad school at Syracuse and Arizona State. And about to get an award from Emerson College. Uh, yeah, yeah, we talked about that in the mic check. Um, yes, I am. I am incredibly honored that that Emerson is giving me a distinguished alumni award this coming alumni weekend. Uh, I joined some friends, some classmates who are Emmy Award winners and Academy Award winners, and a friend who runs Ford's Theater here in Washington. It's really incredibly humbling. Emerson College was a tremendously important place to me, and that they are willing to honor me is means a lot to me. Let's talk about this campaign, because if you look back at the 20th century, yeah, there were surprises, but a a pretty consistent pattern in in how we nominate and elect our presidents. That was clearly upended in 2016, and we're seeing it again in 2020. Is this the new norm? It's easy to say that uh, we're seeing it again in 2020 because we look, as people, we look for patterns, right? We're sense-making beings. Uh, what's happening here? Well, I just saw this. This is one of those. We sort of fill in the gaps with our brains. And it's unclear to me that we're seeing a repeat on the Democratic side in 2020 of what the Republicans did in 2016. It's a crowded field. There are some um, candidates who, who may seem a bit out of the mainstream. But we've – like it's really early days yet, right? I mean as you, as you said, Super Tuesday is March 3rd and that's where things may, may happen. We, we may see a winnowing of the field. We may see it come down to to one or two candidates, sort of a – mainstream standard bearer and then one more liberal, which we have seen before on the Democratic and Republican side. The difference of 2016 is the outlier won. Um, That doesn't mean the outlier always wins now. Um, It's really, it is very early. Let's turn to the substance of this campaign. I'll throw out a couple of issues, reparations, Medicare for all, Social Security and the debt, free college tuition. They're all being talked about in this campaign but are they being covered adequately in the media? Are we fully understanding what the policy proposals are and, equally as important, how we pay for them? Those are great questions, and I think the obvious answer is no, we are not. I think there are two ways to think about this. One is uh, most voters most of the time don't carry around a spreadsheet of policy positions and they sort of add up, right? Oh, well, this guy's good on seven of the nine and this one's good on, you know, whatever. We don't do that. 
Instead, we have ideas about how the world should work, who we are, and then the policies are proxies for that, right? I think people who say they support Medicare for all, most most of the people who say that probably don't have a full understanding of the mechanics of Medicare. It's an incredibly complex system, and is it Medicare Part A or Part B? Or has it? It's not that. It's, oh, this makes sense to me. This stands in for a set of values, which I believe. I do wish the media did a, a more robust job of saying, here are the mechanics of that. And not just the policy piece, but how it comes true. Right, I, I, I am very frustrated by a, an electorate and candidates who say, I will shout the loudest for the thing in which I believe the most. Uh, you will therefore vote for me and I will therefore make it come true. They then get elected. It does not come true. Right? There, there's no sense of how someone will govern. If, if what a president really, really wanted to happen really badly, we'd have gun control and a wall. We have neither. And I really do wish the... Um, the press would push harder on the candidate saying, okay, how are you actually going to make it happen, right? The Republicans uh, may have – may narrow the, the, the gap in the House. They may take over the House. Um, there will be a, a slim Democrat or Republican majority in the Senate. How, how will you work with the reality of the politics of those bodies to get from where we are in 20 or 2021 when you're inaugurated – to where you want to be in, in 2025, 2030, 2050, right? We're not going to flip a switch and have uh, single-payer health care. Uh, I worked on the Affordable Care Act as a congressional staffer in the House. The reason we don't have single-payer isn't because President Obama didn't give a compelling enough speech, right? So I do wish the media did a better job of covering, asking hard questions about the mechanics of governing, Peter Loge, let's turn to another issue, and that is the candidate's health. If you look at the among the top Democrats in this race, former Vice President Biden, Senator Warren, Michael Bloomberg, Senator Sanders, all in their 70s. Senator Sanders had a heart attack last fall. He will be 79 in September. And he is essentially refusing to release any further details on his medical records. We don't know a lot about the other candidates. And we really don't have a full medical account of President Trump. I think that's problematic. Um, as voters, we come to expect um, who, who this person is going to be, right? This is a stressful job. This isn't something after a year or two you can say, you know what, I'm tired. I'm going to go back to my old day job or something. Um, and I, I, I do think it's troubling. I think it's, it's also a symbol of um, transparency, right? It's not just the medical record. I don't understand medical records, right? I do, I'm a college professor and I do politics for a living. But at least I know, look, here's a medical record. I can run this by smart people. What does this say? And I have a sense that the candidate is being fully honest with me. And, and I think a democratic republic, a democratic society requires a level of, of honesty and transparency from our, from our candidates. Right? I'm not voting for a basket of issue preferences. I'm, I'm voting for somebody in whom I'm putting the trust – not just for the next four years to build roads, but the trust of a republic, which has existed for hundreds of years. I'm, I'm putting the faith of Madison, Hamilton, Jefferson, King, Kennedy in your hands. I want to know who you are. And part of that is, is frankly, your health. Um, and especially as you get older, as all of us get older, we break down a little more easily and it takes a little more time to come back. Like, are you up to carrying the mantle of this ideal, which should be our democracy. And of course, we are both old enough to remember Ronald Reagan when he ran in 1980, again, running for re-election in 1984, that famous line, I won't use my opponent's youth in an experience, which kind of diffused the issue. But he left the White House uh, at a younger age than Bernie Sanders is trying to enter the White House. And, and age isn't a disqualifier, 
right? A, a college classmate from Emerson. Uh, his mom is having her her star turn as as a renowned American artist at the age of ninety nine. Right, age isn't decline. That's incredible. It, she's really remarkable. There's a new show at LACMA. If you're if you're a listener in LA, check it out. Um, that's not disqualifying. But what I want to know is who you are. Are you up to it? Is your health up to it? Right. I know a lot of young people whose health isn't up to it. Show me. Right. Again, I'm not just. I'm not hiring someone to fix my roof. I'm hiring someone to to make us a more perfect union, to bring us together as a nation, to advance the values that we know we can eventually, hopefully, succeed. And part of that is is uh, your policy positions. Part of that is who you surround yourself with, how you talk about your opponents, how you talk about issues, how you talk about people. And part of it is whether or not for the next four years I can count on you to get out of bed every day and do the job. So it's not enough for the candidate to say, just watch me on the campaign trail, three, four, or five events a day, just keep up with me. No, um, because that's artificial. Um, campaigns end. You know, At some point, a bunch of these folks are going to have to drop out because of they'll be eliminated from the process, and then there's election day and you calm down. And it's a different thing, right? A campaign is an endless sprint. Um, I've, I've worked on a lot of campaigns, and you're, you're not thinking – Right, you're moving as fast as you can. You're you're making as few mistakes as possible, knowing that if you make a big mistake and you lose, no one will remember, so it won't matter. And if you make a big mistake and you win, everything will be forgiven. That's different than governing. Governing requires patience. It requires pause. It requires reflection, and it requires endless energy. Um, it's it's a very different kind of a job. You said earlier in our conversation the lessons from 2016. What are the lessons, especially with regard to the coverage of President Donald Trump, then candidate Trump? I think the the lessons, hopefully, that the media have learned, that's not clear, that all of the media have, are that you take people uh, seriously. Um, you're not dismissive of somebody because of their their track record or, you know, oh, he's just one of those. Um, I think you have to get rid of the – you have to – peel back from the sensationalism and dig into into the substance. I think if the Republican candidates in 2016 and the press in 2016 had taken Trump seriously as a Republican nominee, he might not have been the nominee because a lot of the, the, the positions he's held over the years are, are anathema. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the Republicans loved free trade and hated Russia. And I, I, hopefully the press has learned that you you take it a bit more seriously. This is a serious thing. Treat it as such. And what is incredible, if you think about this, uh, the Republican standard bearer has been a longtime Democrat in the case of Donald Trump, and a Democratic front runner is a former Republican in Michael Bloomberg. Uh, yeah, um, that is we are. That is an interesting moment, um, and and it's a reminder, I think, to, to to all of us that that we've come to a point in our country where we sign up for a team um, that, that rather than figuring out the best way to advance our values. And the fact that that a bunch of, of Democrats would say, yes, absolutely, I'll get behind uh, who's wearing blue, right? A bunch of Republicans would do the same with who's behind wearing, what, who's wearing red rather than saying, as a citizen who's concerned about obviously my well-being, being my family, my retirement, but also the health of, of, of our nation, our changing demographics. How do we manage that? Um, the climate is warming. How do we manage that? How do we as a country come together – um, to advance a set of values, to advance a shared notion of what it means to be an American. If we start from that position, we can then look at, at, at a range of candidates from 
Bernie Sanders, um, who's a self-described socialist, to Donald Trump, who, as you say, is, has supported democratic causes, who's the Republican president, to Michael Bloomberg. Who's, like, and you set the you set the labels and the, the the red and the blue aside, and you rather and instead you say, who reflects my values? Who speaks to an America? that I want to see in the morning? Who who reflects what I think it means to be this? Because America is an argument for itself, right? We, we talk about who we want to be. We talk about who we want to lead us and how we want to describe ourselves to ourselves and to the world. And so when we vote for somebody, we're voting for someone to express that set of values, right? We have an investment in the quality of that conversation itself. And I think all of us as voters would do well to remember that the conversation matters than the red or the blue. And I think the media would do well to to remember that this is about a public square in which we are all invested and pay less attention to um, the horse racing and who's up and who's down and who's in one of these and who's one of those. It's not, it's not what America's about. So to that point, a hypothetical. I'm going to put you in charge, pick your favorite media outlet, broadcast news, CBS or ABC, digital and print, the Washington Post, the New York Times, or multimedia like Politico. You're in charge of covering this campaign. You have a team of reporters that's going to cover the race the way you want it to be covered. What are your priorities? <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good question. I would insist on more uh, soccer coverage. We'd start with that. <laughs> okay. DC United. Get that out of the way. Get that out of the way. Get that out of the way. Early. Um, I think I would want to, I would prioritize um, not the campaign process, but the governing process. Um, how do these? How does a leader speak to a group of Americans about who we are as a people, and how will they work with with a governing process to make things happen? Um, I would want to know what their vision is for a vision of America, you know. Um, and if they make a big promise, I would say, how are we how are we going to get there, and what's your fallback position? Right? It's important to have big aspirational promises: uh, single payer health care, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, whatever. It's important to have that, but I would also want to know, yeah, but how are we going to get there? You know, and, and, and make the candidates think a little bit harder, help the voters think a little bit differently and a little bit harder, and make us have a better quality of conversation, right? And part of that is a who's up and who's down. That's fun. That's easy. That's how you don't. I'm into it. I'm really competitive, right? But make that secondary to the quality of the debate itself. Which is interesting because as you hear the Democratic debates right now, a lot of talk, for example, Medicare for all, but oh, by the way, the Senate has to pass that. Do you have a Democratic majority in the Senate? Do you have Mitch McConnell still in control? You also have the Supreme Court, which even now has not been a dominant issue in this campaign, although I think it should be for both parties. Absolutely. And it's not just D's versus R's in the House and the Senate. There aren't not all Democrats agree on what health care should look like. If, if they did, the Affordable Care Act wouldn't have been so complicated, right? It's not just that. And, and it's, you know, how do we bring people along in a way that, that advances things in which we believe even if only incrementally? Um, my first boss in, in the Senate, the late Senator Kennedy, uh, used to say you tack into the wind. Right. So how are you going to do that? And you're absolutely right on the court. Um, the court has always been a political body, but I think it's really unfortunate that it is now um, expressly and overtly politicized. I think that if you've got a qualified, smart jurist, they should be in the position and you should let them do their job. Um, I mean, they ha- the American people have to have faith in the integrity of the courts. 
And, and one way we do that is for politicians to talk about the importance of the independence and integrity of the courts. And, and I would make that a priority rather than, am I going to get a judge who thinks that my team on this one issue is right? When you had these conversations with your students on the campus of George Washington University, what strikes you? What surprises you? What are you hearing from this next generation? I, I've got great. I've got really high hopes. So the students in the School of Media and Public Affairs at GW are really, really sharp. Um, and the Democrats and the Republicans um, debate vigorously. They debate hard, and they debate with integrity. And and they never mistake each other's positions for who each other are as people. Um, I think it's telling that the college Republicans and college Democrats share an office at GW. My project in ethics and political communication has an online chat periodical. I'll bring a couple of people together and bang, bang things around. And most recently, we had the, the chairman of the college Republicans and the president of the college Democrats. And they disagree on some really important policy issues. But they both agree in a vision for a country that is, that is inclusive um, and that is moving forward to, together. And my students value that. I think it's really telling that the, the course I teach on ethics is not required. It's an elective. And it fills. The, the, the course itself is a mix of sort of big think readings, Cicero and Quintilian and Machiavelli and Plato, and guest speakers, friends of mine, people who come in and off the record, their identities are secret, say, here's how it goes on Tuesdays. And the students ask them hard questions, right? The students want to know how do these decisions get made? How do they raise their hand in a meeting and say, you know what, maybe that's over the line. Um, I've... Of, of my students go into Republican and Democratic administrations, Republican and Democratic campaigns, think tanks, interest groups, all of that. Huge amounts of integrity um, and a huge, huge belief in working together to, to solve shared problems. Well, I agree with you. That is encouraging. How do you translate that into a very divided Washington, D.C. and a very divided political culture across the country, whether it's between Democrats and the Republicans or in our media, which is so deeply dividing. I think the media is dividing and divisive, and in part, it's it's how you get, get ratings. Um, one of the reasons I respect C-SPAN so much is because you're committed to, to thoughtful journalism and covering things and letting voters really sort of sort themselves out. There's not a lot of sort of ranting for the sake of ranting. You know, a lot of sports teams have their own uh, TV channel, you know, Manchester United TV. That's kind of what a lot of cable television is. It's my sides. And that's... that's Yet another soccer reference. <laughs> I'm going to work them all in. I'm going to work them all in. Uh, I, th- I think that... Um, I mean, the Yankees have, have their networks and everything else as well. Um, I think that most Americans most of the time aren't mostly there. I think most Americans most of the time are mostly moderate, right? Or they want to have the conversation or they'll – it's interesting. There are a lot of organizations around the country that bring t- people together to, to solve shared problems like the budget. How would you handle the budget? Here's, here's the budget numbers. Here's a bunch of people around a table with different political views. And they'll sort it out, right? They'll make compromises. They'll make decisions they otherwise might not have made to, to raise taxes or to cut funding that even they find surprising. I think, I think the people are there. Uh, Washington isn't as divided as it appears on television. It's too small a town. Um, we all work together. Most of the Democratic and Republican operatives in town know each other. Their kids go to the same schools. They go to the same restaurants. They shop at the same same grocery stores. Some of it is theater for the effective theater. Unfortunately, um, I think the American people don't see it as theater. They see it as this is who we are. 
and that does a disservice to the country as well. You know, I, I work in politics. I've worked in, in Democratic administrations and Democratic members of the House and the Senate because I believe in the ideal of democracy. I believe deeply in Congress as an institution. And it was a real privilege for me to work in the last administration because I got to help my country. Right? And every, almost everybody I know in Washington has that feeling, whether they're working in this administration or the Bush administration or Clinton or Obama or wherever they sit. You come here to change the world, right? And, and we don't come here to be jerks and scream at each other. Right? There are plenty of jobs where you can do that. And um, I think it's a little bit unfortunate that, that for whatever reason, um, media outlets – show us as something that we're by and large not. I think the American people would do well to better understand that most people in Washington are mostly like you and me, right? I, I'm going to take the metro from here to my office and get on a, you know, this is sort of how we are. So, Peter Loge, let me conclude with this question. I'm not going to ask you to predict who is going to win because we are still months away from the general election. But with regard to what we have been discussing here today, what will the story or stories be of this campaign? That's a terrific question. We tend to tell stories uh, backwards in retrospect. Something happened and then we tell a story to explain it. So I think the, tor- the story we tell depends on, on who wins and by how much. Um, if, if Trump loses and kind of a you know, middle-of-the-road Democrat gets elected president, I think the story may be we've reset to normal. Uh, in the last four years, we're not where America is. We're mostly kind of moderately plugging along. If, um, if, if Senator Sanders gets elected president, the story may end up being, you know, the Democrats have their, you know, the resurgent Democratic Party is being pulled to the left. If Trump gets reelected, who knows, right? We're not going to, we're not going to come to the end of the movie and then say that everything in the movie up to the end made perfect sense. The ending made no sense at all. We're going to come to the end of the movie and say, aha, I knew it all along. Here's why everything fell into place. Political pundits. People like, like, like you and me who go on TV and, and predict what's going to happen are statistically terrible at predicting political outcomes. I got him, Phil Tetlock, who's a, a professor, I think, at the University of, South, of um, Southern California, I think, um, has done quantitative analyses of, of political punditry. And, and we get so committed to our stories about how Washington works. And we know because I've been here for 20 years rah, 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 that we – make assumptions about what's going to happen next based on what we think the best explanation was for what happened last. It turns out that's a terrible way to do things. <laughs> so we're going to look back, you know, the day after election day and say, aha, I knew it all along when, as you say, none of us had any idea what was going to happen. And we're going to make perfect sense of something that in the moment seems completely nonsensical. If our listeners want to follow you on social media, uh, how can they do so? Please follow me on Twitter at P-L-O-G-E. And we're also at the um, ethics in uh, Polycom Ethics. Follow me on Twitter and the rest of it will come up. <laughs> Peter Loge. He is an associate professor of media and public affairs and also the director of the Project on Ethics in Political Communication at George Washington University here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. And be sure to like us wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcast. We'd also like for you to rate and review us. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Thank you for listening. <laughs>